I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, Find out about special live events or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Update Is. I'm your host, Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Warner Music Group has announced the promotion of Sarah Ismail to Managing Director of Warner Music Philippines. Ismail will begin her new role on October 1st with a remit to oversee Warner Music operations throughout the Philippines. Marie Ann Robert has been appointed to MD of Sony Music France. Sawidi has signed with Brandon Creed of Full Stop Management. Warner Music Group is now generating over $270 million annually from TikTok, Facebook, Peloton, and other alternative platforms. Twitch has reached a long-awaited pact with music publishers, but it's not a licensing deal. Universal Music Publishing Group UK and Ginseng, a publishing imprint created by artist and songwriter Jin Jin, have announced that producer, songwriter, and DJ Jody Harsh has been signed to an exclusive global publishing deal. Warner Chapel has renewed their deal with the Smashing Pumpkin star, William Patrick Corgan. Universal Music Publishing Group has promoted Natasha Baldwin to EVP of Classics and Screen. Jennifer Smith has been promoted to Head of Urban Tour Marketing and Strategy at Live Nation. She will lead Live Nation's Urban Tour Marketing team, supporting all marketing efforts for its roster of R&B and hip-hop tours within the concerts division. Mandolin, a music industry digital fan engagement platform and concert live streamer, has acquired Noon Chorus. Since its founding in 2020, Noon Chorus has hosted over 650 virtual shows for artists such as Angel Olsen, Guided by Voices, and Japanese Breakfast, and it has also generated $4 million in artist revenue. Capital Music's SVP Global Creative Amber Grimes is leaving the company, and there's no word yet as to where she's headed. Dustin Lynch has signed with Warner Chapel. 
The Weeknd has been accused of plagiarizing his 2018 hit song, Call Out My Name. Producers Sunil Fox and Henry Strange have filed a lawsuit claiming that The Weeknd lifted elements from their 2015 track, Vibe King. Tomorrowland is looking to expand to three weekends to recover from pandemic losses. Universal Music Group is officially a publicly traded company. 60% of the world's biggest music company has officially hit the stock market. A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's guest is partly responsible for the massive Americana resurgence over the past decade. This man is not only an unlikely rock star. He's a composer in the classic sense. He's not only a songwriter. He's a storyteller in the truest sense. And he's not only a multi-instrumentalist. He's a troubadour in the traveler sense. He turned tragedy into melodies and co-founded the platinum-selling indie folk trio, The Lumineers. He recently released his instrumental solo debut album, Piano Piano, which in Italian means step-by-step. Although recorded entirely from the comfort of his Denver, Colorado home, this man usually resides and is currently residing and doing this interview from his beautiful home in Torino, Italy, where he is at this moment. And the writer is Jorge Jeremiah Freights. Thank you so much, Ross, for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, okay, everyone knows your band. Uh, I listened to, uh, to the solo album. Congratulations on releasing an instrumental album. Why did you do an instrumental album? So I think for me, an instrumental album was sort of a, uh, it was a long time coming. I, um, you know, me and Wes, the singer of the Lumineers, we started the band about 15 years ago. And uh, we've written over hundreds, you know, hundreds of songs together, and it's been so fun and so rewarding. But when I first started learning um, the piano, really back in high school, probably when I was like 16, 17, I really sort of fell in love with um, the piano. And over the last probably better part of a decade, every time I had a song idea that I would write that didn't, you know, it was like pretty clear would not become a Lumineer song. Um, I would just put it into a Dropbox folder. And, you know, I knew sooner or later that I wanted to record this album. My plan was actually to record it probably at the end of 2021, if not early 2022, which would have been likely the time our Lumineers tour uh, would have been wrapping up. But obviously the pandemic struck. And, you know, out of that, it afforded me... Um, like a lot of other musicians that afforded us a lot of, you know, free time besides trying to stay safe and isolated and do all the, you know, that stuff, um, gave us a lot of free time and it was a bummer to like lose, you know, months and months of touring. But, um, I was in my house in Denver and my wife actually, she was like, you know, you should record, you should record that album now. Um, she's from, uh, she's from Italy originally. And I think that very early on in the pandemic, she saw how hard her country was being hit. And 
you know, it was sort of like, I think, you know, you guys are going to be home for months. It's not just going to be a couple of weeks. And, you know, sure enough, uh, that's what happened. So, yeah, I, I recorded the album. And uh, like I said, it's been a long time coming. I mean, some of the songs off the album, I think the oldest one, believe it or not, I think it's called Nearsighted, and it's about 14 years old. Uh, I recorded the guitar stems. I recorded the guitar part uh, back when I was living in London, part of a study abroad program. And like, so that's the oldest one by far. And then some of the ones were like maybe seven or eight years old. Um, one or two I wrote, actually wrote last year uh, while working on the album and then kind of everything in between. So um, yeah, it's been sort of a long time coming this album. A little bit. See, yeah, a little bit. It's tough. It's, it's really difficult though because um, coming from English to a Latin language, uh, the pronunciation, I'm not like, um, I'm not old, but I'm not like a teenager <laughs> where I can just like pick it up as, you know, my, with the way my brain has developed over the years of, of having only spoken English for so many years of my life. But um, living here certainly helps. I mean, particularly in Torino where, where I live with my family, um, most people only speak Italian. Um, if you ask, you know, do you speak English? If you ask that in Italian, um, in my experience, more times than not, people will say no. And then you're like, all right, giddy up, let's go. You know, and then I'll just try to, I'll say some stuff and you can get by. I mean, the biggest thing is just fear. Like, I just feel like an idiot when I'm speaking Italian um, because I'm so like self-conscious of it. And your personality goes out the window because you're just trying to struggle for like the most basic, you know, nouns and adjectives. And the way their sentences are formed are like, is the complete opposite of English. Um, not complete opposite, but little differences like, you know, we say red wine, they say vino rosso, so wine red. They kind of reverse the color and the adjective with the, with the noun and all that. So, but it's been fun. I mean, it's been challenging my brain and, uh, you know, it's difficult at times, but it's also really fun trying to learn and trying to speak it. So, Why did you record the album in Denver? I know that's where you're from, so, but why, why were you in Denver and not in Italy? So originally I'm from a small town, Ramsey, New Jersey. I lived there for about 24 years. Then I moved to Denver, Colorado. I lived there for probably about 10 or 11 years. I just recently moved to, uh, to Italy in August of last year, but I was in Denver, yeah, for about probably a little bit more than a decade. So that was like my second home for for a while. And, um, you know, we had our house there. I had my grand piano upstairs and then downstairs was sort of like a makeshift studio where I had an upright piano, uh, had the computer and all the, the instruments and stuff down there. And, you know, actually early on, during the pandemic and the isolation, I actually called, um, I think, a couple different studios in the Denver area. And I was just seeing, like, what their vibe was and what they could accommodate. And it, it became clear pretty quickly that it was not going to be safe. And I was like, I'm not willing to potentially get COVID-19 to record this album. So, you know, I'm just going to do it myself in my house. And it was, you know, really difficult and really frustrating because what normally took you know, a day or two in a real studio took like seven or nine days at the time because Amazon, 
in terms of deliveries was really backed up. And um, so if I had to order like a new microphone or a new stand for that microphone, everything just was a little bit delayed. And, um, you know, relative to what people were experiencing, that, that's nothing. I'm not trying to say like, woe was me <laughs> because I couldn't record this album. But, um, you know, strictly from a musician perspective, yeah, it was it was a trip. The idea of trying to, starting on a journey to record uh, a full-length LP in my house um, by myself. I worked with a, a co-producer and a co-engineer remotely, this guy named David Barron. He's fantastic. He lives in New York State, and he would help me. Um, you know, we'd FaceTime microphone setups for the grand piano because I'd never mic'd up a grand piano. I can do the upright pretty easily, and I, I know how to do that to a degree, but, you know, it took it took at least a few days to get the grand piano just right. Um, our son just old school recording yeah yeah and you know our son was two years old at the time so it's a two year old in the house um, making a lot of noise obviously Uh, our dog Spaghetti who's an energetic uh, gold retriever he was in the house too and um, there was also literally a house being built next door Um, not even joking like I felt like it was the day that I started to record they were like, all right, let's Jack build hammers. this house and the hammers yeah. and, you know. Did any of that make the right? album? Are yeah. there any tracks that it's just it was a really good performance and you can hear your son or you can hear the dog? So there was, I think on track two, at the very, very top of it, it almost gets cut off a little bit. I think you can hear an airplane, which is like, that's just an airplane sound, but I think that's kind of cool because it reminds, I can kind of remember like, all right, I hear that airplane, but I'm, I'm going to go for the take. I think that made it to Chile. Um, I know for a fact that my son made it to the uh, second course of a song called Arrival, which I think is the final track in the album. It's pretty hard to hear. It's pretty buried. But I was recording um, my upright piano, which was in the basement. And my son was upstairs with my wife. He was playing, and he must have, like, screamed in some sort of joyous moment of playing, you know, a game or something. And... It's a quick, like, yeah, like a, just a little yelp or something. I can hear it because I know exactly where it is. Um, it's on the second chorus of the song called Arrival. And that's cool, though. Like, at first, you're like, when you're starting to master it, you're like, oh, shit, like, I hear this thing. And then you're like, that's cool, though. I, I, it was kind of, you know, when those things happen, it's also kind of a, it's like a philosophical question. You're like, just because you keep it in doesn't make the song cooler, but... You know, but then sometimes it's like it happened naturally. I wasn't trying to record my son and um, didn't take away from the song. And I think now it's sort of this cool like memento or keepsake or something. Well, where up until up until when now where you don't run out of tape, you know, all the classic recordings for eighty years had artifacts like that. You know, and and all the great musicians, all those you know, Thelonious Monk, where you hear him mumbling while he's playing. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? It's like those, those things, those things are priceless in in recordings. I think that 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 I'm always trying to tell artists that it's just a moment recording a song. So it's it's. I think those things are good. Plus, you probably could get him some union now that his voice is on something. So if the song gets licensed, your son's gonna get a bunch of SAG after. <laughs> yeah, right. That's um, true. So you mentioned Ramsey, New Jersey. Let's start from the beginning a little bit. Usually I start from the beginning, but I just listened to Piano Piano this morning, so I was wanted to start with it. But all right, so we're in Ramsey, New Jersey. Are your parents musicians? 
Yeah, so my musical journey really did start in Ramsey, New Jersey. Um, my dad, Joel, was born and raised in Ramsey, New Jersey, officially. Um, he moved to Denver with my mom. They moved, my parents moved to Denver probably like time flies. I don't know if it was five years ago or seven years ago, but I mean, he lived in, in Ramsey for a long time, just to give you some... Uh, you know, that, that, that gauge of time. So he was there. My mom was actually born in Florida. And, uh, you know, they met in, I think, Wayne, New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes from our home, my hometown. Got married and then um, raised, you know, me and my brother in uh, Ramsey, New Jersey. Now, my mom, uh, she was a nursery school teacher. And she did play music for her little, the kids every day. She had an acoustic guitar and she'd probably play, you know, kids songs and whatnot. Um, but she also loved music. I mean, she, she's, you know, she's, she still is cool. I was going to say she was cool. She's still alive. Both my parents are, but she was, you know, listening to like the Moody Blues and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. So, um, pretty cool. And then my dad, uh, taught, I think my dad taught music, um, to high school at one point and, you know, he sang, sang in the choir at church and, uh, yeah, I kind of grew up. Um, in a musical household, there wasn't a lot of, there was not a lot of instruments though hanging around. Um, but I think the most, probably the most crucial moment for my musical career growing up in that house was, um, I remember we got an organ. It was like a really like all time, like organ with a bunch of buttons and colors. And I don't think it was like a B3, but it was kind of akin to like that cool type of organ. And as a kid, you're like, wow, it's just cool pushing the buttons and, slamming keys and whatnot and and then eventually um my mom she worked at this nursery school and for some reason they had this old upright piano and they they gave it to us i guess they were going to throw it out i don't know and then they gave it to us we've got it in our house in our dining room and that's where i really fell in love with the piano that was it was probably always there since uh, from a relatively young age and my mom said that you know whereas most kids go up to the piano and like slam it with both their hands i was sort of going up to it and like tinkering you know and like you know playing performing it softly and which was kind of strange and uh yeah i remember my first my first musical memory was probably my my mom she bought i think two cds one for me and one for my brother my older brother josh he got a cd of mozart and i got a cd of beethoven and I remember we would like argue who was sicker, Beethoven or Mozart. And then hmm. like I loved Beethoven. And I remember just hearing, you know, the strings and Beethoven's music coming out of the speakers. And I just was like, I don't know how young I was, but I just remember being like, whoa, this is like, do you this still, is so do you still think you know? Beethoven is, is better than Mozart? Yeah, I, I really do love Beethoven. Um, I don't dislike Mozart. <laughs> He's great too. But, uh, in terms of, I don't know, maybe it's just like that That first, it hit me the first at a very young age, so maybe it's hard to like, you know, for any any artist to ever beat that. But um, my favorite part of Beethoven, the symphony stuff and, you know, when everyone plays the strings, it's, it's beautiful, but I really love the piano stuff that, you know, the sonatas, and that was actually my first cassette tape I ever got. It was this thing from a a low-level failing uh, department store called Bradley's, which was in the New Jersey area. And my mom got me this. It was Beethoven sonatas with nature sounds. So it was like 
only piano and like I remember Ode to Joy which is symphony number no. 9 I think yeah um had like the beach and like ocean and seagulls and then there was like the moonlight sonata with like frogs and like you know crickets and stuff and I mean I ran that tape probably clear like I I played you know I'd play side 1 and usually I'd fall asleep and then the next night would be side B or side 2 whatever and then uh, and so on and sometimes if I was really feeling the music, I would like get up out of bed, flip over the tape and, you know, keep it going, keep rocking before I fell asleep. But uh, yeah, that was like my first really big uh, musical influence, Beethoven. When did you start crafting music yourself? Were you, were you playing, did you learn any of those Beethoven piano pieces or did you start interpolating them? I mean, at that point, I feel like for me when I was learning those when I was learning all the classics, I had no patience. So it'd be the first thing I would do is play a chord and be like, oh, well, what if I go and I play this? And then I just naturally just, you know, started playing the wrong things because that's where I wanted to go. And not necessarily right. I, I didn't I didn't have it in me to play. I had it in me to I just wanted to write stuff. Do you know what I mean? Well, no, it's a great question. I think that so I turned 35 in January, and I've been really playing the piano, I mean, since high school, maybe even earlier, but, you know, we could say the better part of 20 years. I feel like in the last six months to a year, I've just started to delve into and start to appreciate learning other people's music. I never really tried to learn. I never just, it wasn't an ego thing. And it wasn't necessarily like I tried and got really frustrated. I just never really had a bone in my body with like trying to learn other people's songs. Now, with that said, when I was in like probably middle school, like I was learning on the piano, I would learn like jingle bells and then <laughs> I'd like try to make it like different. Or I would, I learned Ode to Joy, just the da na 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 na, like, you know, the classic, whatever, um, the lead melody of that song. Sure. But I never was too like, oh, I want to learn. You know, Claire de Lune, and I want to learn the full piece of Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. I think I just appreciated them. And then I just started trying to write my own stuff, but in a very, like, I didn't know I was trying to do that, if that makes sense. I just was really enamored with, like, I would stumble across a D minor chord and maybe in, like, a cool, like, inversion. And then I'd go to a G major and be like, I love the way these specific voicings and the way the shapes of my hands are being made right now. And I just would play that a lot, a lot, a lot, you know, obsessively probably. And that's kind of how I learned how to play the piano. And then um, my ear, I would still say arguably my ear is pretty bad, like in terms of, um, like if you played me something, I probably wouldn't be able to play it back for you. Nowhere near, I don't even have relative pitch perfect. I'm like nowhere near any of that stuff. But I think through repetition, even when it comes to my solo stuff or with Lumineer stuff, I really do have to practice a lot. I have to remember um, what the hell I'm doing and what I get really obsessed with inversions, like you know what's the top note, the bottom note, and all that. And I, I really love that's a huge high for me. I love coming up with the inversions and the shapes that my hands are making and all that. But um, you know, in terms of trying to remember my own music, I have a makeshift way to do it on I usually use like yellow legal pad and I'll just like write out the notes and um it's it's my own like hieroglyphics that I can understand essentially 
But besides that, I just live and die by like voice memos on my phone and then repetition, just playing it a lot. What made you, what, what's the first time you actually wrote something though? At, did you write in, the, in, in high school? So I, I actually remember it very vividly. The first really like strong inclination to write something was, I forget how old I was, if it was eighth grade or maybe freshman year of high school. I remember there was um, a kid in town who was friends with my older brother. I remember Patrick Sullivan. And I remember that his mom died of cancer and it was it was a tragedy, you know. She was still a young mom, I think of at least two, two boys. She died of cancer. And I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of, I want to try to take these feelings that I'm feeling and, you know, what's going on inside of me and um, try and write a song. And I remember writing a song. It was called Fade Away. It was very, like, somber and, you know, or I tried to write some lyrics about, I guess, what it's like to lose somebody or try to think about that. I don't know. It was not a great song, but, yeah, it was, I guess, like, realizing that um, tragedy is going to occur and sadness, part of this human journey. And, yeah, it was, I don't know. It was interesting, I guess. It was, like, my first real desire to be, like, I want to write 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 about this, what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking about. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, Beethoven is such an emotional kind of writer, and when you grow up around that kind of music, I'm sure that that inspires it. Versus if you grew up around Cool and the Gang, you probably would be, you know, not thinking I'm going to write something that I feel in that way. You'd be thinking, well, I should just, you know, write some sort of party records, not necessarily. (laughs) No, that's a good point. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Um, you know, you mentioned tragedy, and obviously, there's. You you had, you know. I want you to talk a little bit about your brother passing and how that changed your trajectory as a human and as a and as a sure. musician. I mean, I think for me, it goes without saying. When I lost my older brother Josh, uh, he was nineteen. He died of a heroin drug overdose. Um, goes without saying, is the worst thing. And I pray it remains that way. The worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I think I was 14 at the time. Um, and, you know, it was, yeah, it was really just awful. It was the worst thing that's, that's ever happened. And, um, you know, for the whole family, it was my parents' firstborn son. He was my only sibling. He was my older brother. I looked up to him like a normal, you know, a normal sibling relationship in that way. And uh, I don't know. I guess I, I've had a lot of time to reflect. I think he died in 2001. So I guess it's been 20 years. Um, be 20 years this May, May 27th was the day he died back then. And um, I think I kind of grew up overnight in some regards. You know, I remember being, I think I was a freshman in high school. I think I was 14 and um, still a kind of a coming of age age, you know, in someone's life. And for that to happen, I think I kind of grew up overnight. I think it's sort of, I don't know. I think for better or for worse, probably for worse, I mean, it, it, it taught me this lesson that like life can be really shitty sometimes and really hard and really brutal. And I think that stuck around with me for a long time. I think that I was 
I think it threw me into some sort of depression or this idea that, yeah, like the sadness was just was so deep and the grief was so deep. And I think that really affected me. I mean, it really made me um, completely not care about school at all anymore. It really threw me into like the drums. Like I just fell, I got obsessed with the drums. I had just gotten a drum set a year or two prior to that happening. Um, I really didn't care about school. I remember like getting called into the office one day and there was the principal and the vice principal and my parents and my gym teacher for some reason. I don't know why she was there. And like, they were like, you know, you're going to have to repeat uh, freshman year of high school if you don't, you know, get your grades, you know, going. And I just didn't, I didn't really care about anything. And I loved uh, escaping through music, um, started to smoke weed with my friends, you know, freshman, sophomore year of high school and really just go into that musical kind of, kind of cliche, you know, vibe, but it was sort of like solace too for what I was going through. It was a really great way to escape, obviously. And uh, I think it informed a lot of what I was doing musically and what I liked out of music. I think I, I, think I thought, um, you know, you have to be a tortured artist to be a great artist. You should be sad when writing. You should be depressed. Otherwise, you won't have street cred. Um, you know, I, I don't know if those are specific things I thought, but you know, you're 16, 17 at that point. Um, yeah, I think that kind of seeped into my my DNA and my bloodstream and my the way I was thinking about life. I was, you know, be to be a tortured artist, that's like the right path and that feels good and that is good and that's what <laughs> other artists have laid down before you. And, uh, you know, I would honestly say that maybe only in the last four or five years, six years, I've discovered that um, I'm so much more creative and I think a better musician not feeling so depressed and not feeling so heavy and actually feeling joyous and joyful and, you know, being a father and um, all these things, all these positive changes that have happened in my life in the last five years. But Yeah, I was going to ask that. The way, way, you know... the Lumineers music has so many, it has, you know, different phases. So it's, you know, it's not, there are clearly parts that are really introspective and dark and, you know, and, and tell stories that are, are hard to hear in a good way. You know, they're, they're, they're deep and they, you tap into some emotions a lot of people don't go to. Um, but, there's such joy in you know something like a a hey ho, or at least sure. you know. So it's really interesting that coming out of the struggle that you know from fourteen, fifteen years old to when hey ho comes out, I guess that'd probably be about eleven years later. You know, yeah, it like that feels like such like a bright light at the end of a tunnel. Yeah, and I think that it was interesting because when Wes and I started writing music, um, Wes was actually friends with my older brother Josh uh, years prior, and then um, you know they had lost touch, and my brother lost touch with a lot of people. I think through his addictions, and um, you know it tends to happen. You kind of close off certain friend circles, and you embrace the ones that you use with or or do drugs with or whatever. You know, um, so. When Wes graduated from university down in Virginia, he actually came back to our hometown, Ramsey, 
uh, was looking to start a band with this other guy named Justin. And that was a mutual friend of ours. And Justin was like, yeah, let's do it. But he actually said not without Jer because me and, believe it or not, at the time, me and Justin, um, we were making like rap and hip hop beats. I was really enamored <laughs> with, uh, I was 19 at the time. I was really enamored with like making rap and hip hop beats. I really loved um, a lot of what producers were doing. And um, I love all kinds of music, but I really loved like trying to make rap and hip hop beats. I love like Timberland. I think he's one of the best, you know, writers in that regard. And um, I just sort of loved that idea. But so that's a side tangent. But Wes wanted to start this band and Justin said, not without Jer. Then that's how I got pulled into it. And I could play drums and a little bit of piano at the time, but. I guess where I'm going with this is Wes and I became clear that we were, um, you know, writing a lot of songs. Like Wes had already had a handful of songs that he brought in. And then I was very like uh, green in terms of songwriting. I didn't really have a lot of, what's the word? A lot of, I don't know, a lot of experience it. doing yeah. it. And still to this day, I'm really bad with lyrics and words, but I would try to show him stuff and he could embellish it because he's a great writer. I mean, he writes all the lyrics for the band. So um, he's an exceptionally, you know, profound and talented writer and um, but i think where i'm going with this is that we were really enamored i think at the beginning of our career writing music i think we really tapped into the darker side of stuff i remember like i was like i want to write a song about my brother who died and then um you know again tragically in 2007 wes's father he passed away of cancer and uh you know we wrote a song wes wrote a song about that and um i think that we were looking at things around us that were happening. And this was a really positive, cathartic way to make sense of the things that were happening. And they happened to be sad. And I think too that like, in terms of songwriting and creativity, if you have a really great day, I've kind of thought about any sort of joy you feel or positivity. It seems like that amount of like, if you were to translate that into like, gasoline or fuel for writing a song it seems to be like a short short-lived it burns up quickly but like grief and depression and sadness it gives you like tanks and tanks of fuel for you know for better or for worse and i think there's a lot more to draw from that and i think that's just kind of what we set out to do is be a band that was talking about things and i think you know just because it also it felt good to be like try to make sense of these at times terrible things that were happening and um I think that's what was interesting when Hohe came out. It felt like people had maybe, maybe more than a few people had pegged us as like, ah, oh, this happy-go-lucky band. And um, I think that happens if you ask any band, you know, with a big song, any big song, even Radiohead with Creep, I'm sure they like hated that song and the shadow it cast over them because you're like, we have so much more material and you don't want to be known for one song. And I think thankfully after, you know, We've put out three albums. I think that we've shown people that we're more than just that song. Of course, I really feel that. But I think at the time it was a little bit difficult because, you know, you're like, we have more more songs. And ironically, it has this kind of happy-go-lucky vibe, but it's actually a breakup song. And, it, you know, a lot of people used it for their wedding and their first, dan first you know, dance or they're walking down the aisle or whatever. And Wes has said many times in interviews, it's funny because he's like, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's actually a breakup song. So there's that even into that song. Um, Why did yeah, that's, you... I think that, yeah. You ended up graduating high school. You ended up going to college. You ended up graduating college. So you did get a lot of things together. You moved to Denver. 
when? Just just trying to get like the is it after you and Wesley started the band? Or did you guys meet yeah. like No, we had um he came back to Ramsey, I was nineteen. Um I remember we mo- I think we moved to Denver two thousand nine. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So uh, that would be, yeah, I, think, I think we moved to Denver 2009 and I want to. I think the band maybe officially started in two thousand five, two thousand six, something like that. So we had been going for about four or five years. Uh, we had been playing mostly local to New York City. You know, we sort of a lot of people were like, take the biggest city that's closest to you and make that your home base. We were very close to New York City, so that was obvious. We were in New Jersey, but New York City was, you know, really close relative. Um, didn't, besides the traffic, it wasn't that far at all. So we played a lot of shows in New York City, in the Village, and a lot of clubs, and a lot of the same shows, and inviting a lot of the same people. But yeah, probably after four or five years of the band, we had moved out to Denver. And we had, uh, before we moved out to Denver, Wes and I had, and I had completed um, a seven-song EP that I think had, like out of those seven, five or six of those were off the self-titled uh, debut album so we were we were ready to rock like when we arrived into denver um yeah we were like we had a, a really strong idea of what we wanted to sound like musically and what we wanted to do i think denver has a surprisingly good music scene or at least there are a lot of accomplished musicians that have come out of denver why yeah it's a good question i mean i think that the biggest thing that gets in the way of anything, it's just probably time and how people use that time. And I think that, you know, if you can just eliminate distractions, then you will be able to work so much more on whatever it is you're into, if that's gardening, songwriting, you know, whatever it is. And I think that when we were living in the New Jersey, New York City area, Wes had actually moved to Brooklyn and he realized very quickly he was working two jobs um, just, just to pay rent. Um, I was still finishing up school at the University of uh, William Patterson in New Jersey. And so I was living with my parents, commuting, doing that whole thing. He was living in Brooklyn. And I think he was working at least two jobs just to make rent. We weren't rehearsing as much anymore. And then, you know, we were like, we could move into New York City, but then we're both going to work so much just to live in a cool zip code. Is that really worth it? And the answer was no. So we thought, how can we eliminate distractions? Believe it or not, we actually looked at um, 
A couple years prior to that decision in 2009 to move to Denver, I had actually lived uh, in Kingston-upon-Thames, this small little uh, city outside of London, like part of the study abroad program. And there was this place called Brighton Beach. And it was the first spot I ever bought one of these fedoras. And it was a really cool area. It's called Brighton Beach. It's still a really cool place. And uh, we actually both knew of the spot. We wanted to move to Brighton. So we actually wanted to move to England um, just with visas and working and doing it all legal. It, felt, yeah. it just seemed like diff- too difficult. So then we were thinking we could go down to Philadelphia, which was relatively close. We could go to Boston. And then um, as luck would have it or whatever, like the universe, you know, we had uh, two friends moving out to Denver. Uh, one was going to grad school and the other one was becoming like a teacher. And I think they were like, if we get four of us together, you know, we can get a bigger house, bigger, more space, less rent per head. Let's just do that. So we said, all right, let's do it. And um, I mean, this all this all sounds so. Uh, it sounds so unchained. Like just the yeah, ability to like, so, go live yeah, anywhere this is we like, want. It sounds so like, oh yeah, we just we just did it. We made these decisions. I mean, in the reality, like. You know, if this was condensed into an hour and a half movie, the reality would be like a 13 DVD box set of like eight hour episodes per, you know, 13 episodes or something. Like, there was a lot of. Um, sure, of course. It wasn't easy to just to make these decisions. And in fact, there was probably a brief moment at which me and Wes probably broke up the band. I want to say for like a day, because we had been writing so much together. And we'd been working so much on songs. And I think we just really loved songwriting. I don't think, we weren't necessarily like we're going to become this great touring band. We had no idea even how to tour. But we were so focused on songwriting. And the biggest problem was the music arguably came easy. The hardest part was actually the human beings involved. So, you know, it was me and Wes and this guy Justin. And then eventually Justin left. And then we worked with this guy named Dave who played bass. And then we worked with this guy named Joe who played, who came in. It was always like one in, one out. We always remained a trio for for many years. Um, There was another guy that played bass. There was another guy that played drums. And these people would, they'd come in, they'd get really excited about the band, the songs. I think they thought it was really cool to go to New York City and play some shows. Uh, None of us were making a lot of money. In fact, Wes and I were losing a lot of money, you know, paying for instruments and computer recording equipment and gas and all that. And they would say like, listen, good luck guys. I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to do the safe thing. And there's nothing wrong, you know, doing the safe thing. But um, yeah, it was just, it was really hard to keep the band members together. So I think at one point me and Wes just were kind of fatigued from this revolving door of cast members of, of band members. And I think at one point, I was just going to try to move into a, a different house in, um, I don't know if it was, uh, what is the name of that? Hoboken? That Hoboken yeah. area, maybe Jersey City or Hoboken. Sure. Um, so I live close to New York City. And I think I was going to try to pursue like opening up a studio or maybe like go back to producing um, beats or making some beats or something. And it was a plan for one moment. And then I remember Wes was really like bent on, uh, you know, he was like, I really want to go to Denver. And I remember he called me and I was outside my house talking to him on the phone. And I think he said something like, I'm going to Denver. I think you should really come. Like, and then it was like, all right, let's go. And uh, 
that's kind of, you know, we like that at that point though, that was sort of like the fuck it moment. Like, let's just try it. Let's just, let's go for it. And, um, it's so weird. You know, it's like right? the opposite, yeah. you know, to, if you were to tell someone in 2009 or so, is that about when you went? I think it was oh nine. Yeah. So if you go to two thousand nine, you know, this is this is the pinnacle of of Max Martin music at pop radio. It's like it is somebody says, like, I'm gonna go pursue Americana music and move away from the big city to Denver. If that were my kid, I'd be like, "Wow, you're an you're an idiot, man." <laughs> because even if it's genius music, if, if this is not this is not a very good recipe. You're going the opposite direction to where the hits are made and where the things are, and it's like it's the smartest move you guys could have made, and it it totally seems miscalculated. I think I think the reason it worked is because when we moved to Denver at the time. You know, back then, over ten years ago, it was a different. The city has changed so much for better. I mean, there's there's way more people that move. I think at one point, it was at least a hundred thousand people were moving there per year. I think the number was even bigger. But you know, also marijuana got legalized and all this stuff. But it just droves and droves of people moved out to Denver um, for a lot of good reasons, and it got more expensive over the years. But when Wes and I moved out there, um, it was a lot cheaper, and I think having very low overhead. Um, that was kind of everything because it just was a matter of bogging down and being able to work on stuff and focus on stuff. So by working like a menial job at a, a sushi restaurant, that's where I worked. Wes was working at a, a Japanese restaurant, which was basically the same restaurant. We would actually like, we lived together. We worked at the same restaurant job and then we also worked on music together. This was all in Denver. Um, I think having very low pressure and overhead to be able to work on music was really key. And it was funny because when we moved to Colorado, um, we were sort of known as the guys from like New York City. That's hmm. just, even though we weren't from New York City, I think that's how like the image we had. And then it's funny, sort of to your point, the first time we actually got, um, we had the opportunity to do a residency at the living room. It's a venue that closed down, but it used to be in New York City. And uh, I think it was in the village. It was called the living room. And I think we'd always tried to play there, but I think there was almost this uh, alluring aspect that like we were known as now a band from Colorado. So we were like now exotic fruit to New York City. And being in Colorado, we were like exotic fruit since we were from the East Coast. So I think it sort of played to our advantage in some weird way. But I remember like playing um, the living room. Uh, it, was the, it was probably March of... I don't know, 2011, something like that. And every, I don't know, every Tuesday was our night, four or five Tuesdays in that month, whatever it was. I remember like the first night, 25 people came. Next week, 50 people came. The next week, it was 75. Then eventually, it was like 150. And then the last final night was completely sold out. And that was a cool, like, okay, something's happening. The music we're writing, the music we're performing now on stage is really, um, seems to be connecting with people. What and was the goal? A lot. What's that? You know, like you're saying, you're at home, you're writing songs, and you guys are really good at writing songs, and and it's the people are the hardest, and you're moving, you live in Denver, you guys put together, you know, a live show that's reacting to people. Is the goal to then tour? Is the goal to be? I mean, there's no way. 
that you could have predicted the success of Jorge or anything like that at that point. No. But were you was that the goal? I mean, the goal was always to get it off the ground somehow. Whatever that, whatever that means, whatever getting off the ground yeah. means. It wasn't necess- It was more like, how do we make money at this and be professional? Not necessarily, how do we become rock stars? Yeah, what's going to be like the linchpin moment or whatever that is going to be? Take this from like we can quit our jobs right. and just pursue, be able to write music. It wasn't about making money or or anything. It was just like, how can we do this for the rest of our lives without having to worry about? other things that are not important <laughs> to us. Totally. And I think that one of the best assets ever, um, and it's good to remember stuff like this, was uh, meeting this guy named Stealth Ulvang, and um, that's his real name, S-T-E-L-T-H. He's the piano player in our band now. He's been with us for, I don't even know, forever. And when we moved to Denver, Colorado, uh, we went to an open mic. I think we Googled, like, best open mic in Denver. We found this place called The Metal Ark, which was a little dive bar. We went there. We met this guy named Stealth. Um, I remember the first thing I said to him, I was like, there's no way that's your name. Take out your driver's license and show me. And he like slammed it on the bar and he proved that his name was Stealth and that it was not a nickname. And he was in another band at the time and we realized he was really talented. He could play everything from like piano to accordion to like guitar, the flute, I think even the saxophone. He's just a really, you know, really talented guy. And he was touring a lot with his band. I mean, they were they would go from Denver, they'd go, you know, maybe down to New Mexico, they'd go through Utah, Nevada, and they'd go up the California coast, up to Portland, Seattle, over to Boise, Idaho, Chicago. They were playing, and what they were doing was very different than anything I'd ever knew about. Because growing up in the suburbs in New Jersey, I didn't know what the hell a house show was, and it was actually kind of this like really eye opening moment where. Stealth kind of gave us a lot of like idea to uh, how to like how do you tour it, how do you make gas money. So if you're going from Denver down to like you know I don't know Santa Fe, New Mexico, or Taos or something, and trying to play a gig, making money at a actual venue when nobody knows who the hell you are is a very bad business scheme because like any money you even make from tickets at the door go to other people, and then with gas money you lose a lot of money. Anyway, but if you play a house show and you're sort of vouched for like somebody else that knows them, more people come out. Maybe you pass the hat around at some point, and maybe you make like fifty, or maybe you make two hundred bucks cash, and you know that goes to your subway sandwiches and your gas money and all that. And uh, yeah, so Stealth was like he gave us all those great tips and info, and um, you know we eventually poached him from the other band. We got him in our band, and then uh, that band was probably pretty pissed. I think, yeah. I mean, I think they were on the verge of going separate ways. I, it, you know, that's that's all, that's my version of the exactly my memory of that. <laughs> There's, I mean, but, you yeah. the house the house show scene is so big and it's so important in telling when you're, you know, if you want people to to enjoy the music where it's background venues are great. If you want people to yeah, focus exactly. on check out this piano part. And check out this lyric. House shows are everything, you know. They're they're like small theaters rather than small venues. Can't recommend house shows. 
Also, like a lot of the times, you would end up sleeping at that person's house because if they were having a house show, they were likely very hospitable and they knew, and that was like a lifestyle that they were into, having random people sleep on their, you know, floors and whatnot. Or somebody at the house show would be like, you guys can stay with us. And, you know, now it's just, yeah, like we'll probably (laughs) never do that again in that that way. But um, it was a lot of fun and, you know, it wasn't always, like sometimes you'd stay at someone's house and, I remember two different times, like the heat. One time the place just, they didn't have heat. We were freezing in our sleeping bags. And then like, it was like comical, like the next or like two nights later, somehow like one of us turned the heat off while just trying to simply turn the lights off to go to sleep. And it was like just comically freezing again in the house. But um, yeah, those were like really desperate times. And, you know, we did a huge, massive tour from Denver to coast to coast in my 2001 Ford Windstar. Huh. And uh, yeah, just really crazy, exhausting. Um, how do you go from for, for years? How do you go from that to the Lumineers that we know? Who I ju- think that, who discovers the band that's playing in people's houses? Even if you're selling out places in Denver, like there's a big difference. We there must be a thousand bands that can do that throughout the country. Um, sure. Who notices? What's the story from you going from that to being, you know? I think the that next there's a step. lot of. Uh, I think that it's like a million things going right, a million things going in your favor. Um, there was kind of a like anything. There's a confluence of events. I remember it's probably still on YouTube somewhere. It's probably not that hard to find, actually. Um, our friend, I don't know if it's under his name, Isaac Ravi Shankara. He um, filmed us performing Hohe at a house show. It just was us performing. We didn't even know it was being filmed. And it was very just like casual, went up on uh, YouTube. And I don't know if it went viral, but it started to garner like a lot of views, like over 100,000 and maybe hundreds of thousands. And I think that was a cool way that Hohe was not recorded yet. It wasn't on Spotify. Spotify probably didn't even exist at that time. There was no Shazam. Even if you Shazam the song, um, there was no release yet of officially, so it wouldn't have worked anyways. So that was sort of the first thing. And then um, we we played that, sh- that residency in the living room in New York City, and somehow a friend of a friend was working at this uh, management agency, and I think once a week, every Monday, they kind of said, like, anybody got any new bands, new hot bands in the sky? Just on a lark, was like, oh, I hear there's this band, the Lumineers from uh, Denver. Um manager from that company flew out to the living room, met with us, and was just really excited, loved the show, loved how many people were there, probably thought, this is awesome. Um, I think we ended up signing with that management. We have the same lawyer since before we found anybody, before we found management or booking agent, and he loved our seven-song EP that we had recorded in our house, and he was like, if you guys never make any money, then... You know, there'll be no contracts and no work, so I'm not going to lose anything. But essentially, if you guys ever start to play like Radio City Music Hall, I'll ask for a commission. And we were like, all right, cool. And then uh, we found management, and he helped us make sure that we had a good contract with our manager. And then eventually we found booking agents. But um, so once we found our management, they really liked us. They were like, we got to get you guys in a studio and re record all these lo fi demos of the songs. So that's what we did. We recorded uh, what is now known as the self-titled debut album um, in upstate Washington. And 
you know, we recorded whatever the 10 or 11 songs on an album. And the first big, like really big moment was, I forget the name of the show, but our album came out in April. I forget which year, but in December, about five months before the album came out, it was our first ever sync, our first ever license. And Hohe was in a TV show and it might have been the show called Nashville. I can't remember now. But I remember whatever show it was, we all went to someone's house and we watched the show. It was like live, you know, back like live, like it was on like at 8 p.m. on Channel 7 or whatever it was. And we were watching and we kept watching the episode of the show and we're like, man, when are they going to play it? And it's like 8.47 and we still haven't heard the song. We're like, did it get like, did it get bumped? Is it not going to be on? And then... It must have been like the last minute and a half of the episode we heard Ho Hey being played. And it just was like such a cool moment. Like, because you realized it was coming from the TV and not from your iPod or your laptop or whatever. It was coming from the TV. And I, I can still vividly remember going on like Yahoo. Somebody had texted us like, yo, people are asking what's the name of the song on Yahoo Answers, you know, like Yahoo, like you can ask <laughs> questions and answers and that type of thing. And I remember there was no, there was no uh, release of the song at that point. So you couldn't find us. You couldn't find the song, Ho Hey. And I think it was like truly going viral. Like a lot of, like potentially millions of people had watched this episode of that TV show, heard the song, um, couldn't find it on the internet. I remember answering to some people like, we're a band called the Lumineers. This, you know, it's coming out in April. And I think that that literally started everything. Like we had a, you know, once we had the artifact, once we had a high definition recording of Ho Hey. Um, and then there was another guy to give credit. Uh, his name's John Richards. He's a DJ at a KEXP in Seattle, Washington. And he had a stack of CDs on his desk and he just started, you know, he randomly found our Lumineers album. He found the song Ho Hey. And he just said he, he was playing it back to back, which is very, you know, strange for anyone to do that in the radio. He just was playing it back to back. And um, I, I'll never forget that when we were leaving from Denver and going to play, you know, places like the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles and eventually uh, other places in Portland and Seattle and whatnot, um, shows, these were like 150 to maybe maybe 400 cap uh, venues. Um Shows started to sell out before we got there. And that was the biggest high. Like, if we sold out, you know, a 10,000-person capacity in a couple of hours today, I still think that's super cool. But it will never feel as cool as selling out that first 200-capacity room. Because I, I would even say, argue, for you to headline let's say like zero to 600 capacity for you to sell that out by yourself with no extra help is arguably harder in some weird way than to get to like the Madison square garden because bands that get to play Madison square garden are most likely like just chopping away and eventually getting up to like 600 capacity to 1200 capacity to 2,500 to 5,000. And if you just keep good and you keep getting bigger, you'll eventually play those bigger places. Not always, but that's like that's one trajectory that some bands see to get you know most bands will just not get over that first hump which is a real big that's really sad and that's a tragedy in its own right but that's a really stark reality for when you start a band or as a solo musician 
that first hump, pushing that first boulder over the mountain, I think arguably is the hardest. So once we started selling out those places, I just, my mind was blown and, and it was so exciting. And, and then it, it just got crazier from there. I mean, I remember we would be playing a place, it would be weeks or even a month out before we even got to that city. And they were like, guys, the show in St. Louis or the show in um, Chicago, it sold out so fast that we're going from the 400 capacity now to like the 1100. And I remember even one time, like the 1100 got sold out so fast. So they rebooked it a third time because they realized that as the promoter and as the venue, they were like, we got to, you know, give these guys a bigger spot because people are going to be pissed. This is like the places were becoming too small for us. And it just was, it was mind blowing. I mean, I really, you know, it's cool to go down memory lane right now because you can take it for granted sometimes that you're going to sell tickets and that you're going to sell out places that are very large and it just was so freaking cool when that first started to happen. Yeah, there's no question. And, yeah. Those being able to, it, it's a marker, like you were saying. It's like it's the having a roof over your head is is the heart is is much more important than having a larger roof over your head. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's a it, it gets hard to tell the difference. Um, but you know it. You end up doing that, and, and you go from that to being, you know, being nominated for best new artist. I I can't imagine what it must be like for parents to see their kid get nominated for best new artist, having lived all over the place and having toured like that. Um, how did your parents react to something like that? Well, it's funny because my parents were over the moon, obviously, and I actually I brought them to the Grammys. They were my date, and we we got to perform in the Grammys, and we were nominated for two it was for best new artist, and I think best Amer- of the year, best Americana album, and oh, there it is. Okay, yeah. but yeah, it was best Americana album, which I believe Bonnie Raitt. It was actually a funny story. Bonnie Raitt, um, she won, and she deservedly so won. But we were on the red carpet doing the mega press and uh, we didn't know if we had won or lost yet for that matter. And Bonnie Raitt uh, just like happenstance came up to us on the red carpet and said like, guys, I'm so sorry. Y'all deserved it. And we were like, it was like this mind blown moment of meeting her, but then also being like, shit, wait, we, we lost. <laughs> like, um, But all good. And uh, so, yeah, we, we lost both the Grammys. It was the only two Grammy nominations we ever received, but um, like I said, you know, I brought my parents out as my dates, and I think they they must have been over the moon, and they they were always so supportive. Though I mean, like all the rehearsals before we moved out to Denver, all the songwriting, having a son that learned drums in the house must be agonizing. Like I was in the house playing drums, and you know, particularly my mom because my dad worked a lot, and he was gone a lot. My mom was always home, so listening to me play the drums or working on songs or having to listen to me and Wes work so much on these bad songs when we were first starting out, you know, she had a lot of patience, but she was always really supportive. Um, it was a really like open house, you know, like people would, friends would come over musicians. We'd have the coffee always made in the pot. My mom always had tons of food in the fridge. And it just was a spot to really like to play music and, um, you know, learn how to play instruments and learn how to write and learn how to become a better performer and all that. So, my parent, you know, every parent is always so supportive and my mom would always say things like, oh, you know, honey, I hope 
people all over the world should hear this music and things like that. And then when it started to happen, it was like, yeah, I imagine it was a pretty cool moment for them. And I think it still is. They're really, you know, like my mom's ringtone when somebody calls her, <laughs> it's like, I think it's, I think it's ho hey. And I'm like, yo, mom, I, <laughs> it's a little like, that's a little much. You got to change that. But no, of um, course not. I, I think any, <laughs> anybody who's in the industry, their mom has one of their songs as, as I think yeah. that literally that's true. Um, you know, you said earlier that you, you know, you didn't want Hohei to be the song that you'd be remembered, like the only song you'd be remembered for. And it ended up, you know, a lot of people have a second album and they have a sophomore slump, but you guys really didn't. I think Ophelia might be the biggest song you have, or it's, you know, it's got to be pretty close to being yeah, tied. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty it's massive. Exciting, yeah. So once you start having a second album like that, do you start to feel satiated? I mean, I, for me, no, I, I haven't and probably never will. Uh, but no, I, I feel like, fair. Um, yeah, I feel like, but I think, that, I think there's something to that where, um, you know, I think it's important not to let success uh, be so intertwined with your, identity and your state of mind, your state of happiness or your lack thereof. I think that's a dangerous road um, to sort of walk down. But yeah, I mean, to be satisfied or to be satiated, I think, uh, you know, I think in some way it was it was a relief to be able to, to release an album that we thought was that strong because like you said, the sophomore slump is a thing. It happens to, it's happened to enough bands that it became a, a term, sophomore slump. So you know, it must be historically uh, rooted in truth. And I think it is. Um, and, and and a lot of bands that we admire have that moment. They come out of it and they have you know bigger yeah. songs. And you know, even if it's Weezer or Maroon Five, or we can list a, a shitload of bands that their second album sure. wasn't as big as their first one. And then. You know, but there there are much fewer people who have a, a hit off their second album, especially because it came four years after your first album. So it wasn't they weren't back to back, and it wasn't just you you weren't just running albums. Um, but something yeah. about that era, and this is this is what is shocking, is that you had as clean of pop that there had ever been at the top of radio charts. And then there's this giant scene that you guys are at the forefront also with Mumford and some of these other more Americana type bands that we can go through and list a ton of them. But you guys were at the top of it. What was it that changed the zeitgeist? Why, why did we all of a sudden start appreciating, I, I, I'm going to put in quotes, like real music? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, we got asked that a lot, a lot, a lot when we were doing press during that first album circuit. And I think for me, like, you know, I don't really think in terms of genres too much. And when we're writing music, we're not like trying to fit into some sort of genre. And for that matter, we're, we're, we're not trying to not fit into some genre. We're just trying to write great music, trying to write strong melodies, tell stories, the whole nine yards. I think with our music, um, I don't know. I think it was just like we were writing real music. I think we were writing from an authentic place in our hearts. I think that we were 
not trying to do anything, not trying to ride any sort of flavor of the week movement that may have been happening or something, you know, but I think that, yeah, other bands seem to gain success. Like you said, Mumford and Sons, I think they really kicked down a lot of doors for a lot of bands. Um, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, the Avid Brothers, um, the Felice Brothers even. Like a lot of bands were just, I think, either writing or being discovered as like, well, these are great songs and they don't need auto-tune or massive drum beats or this or that. And I think Ho Hey was, in a cool way, a really unique example of that. I mean, there's not even really like, there's drums, but it's mostly foot stomps and there's a kick drum in there that I remember playing. And I don't even think there's necessarily electric bass. I think there's just a cello that was turned up like 30 dB that was plucked. And it's like the antithesis of like, if Max Martin was like, give me the next big single, you would never be like, well, it's got, it's got mandolin, almost no drums. And like, you know, it's really simple. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I think he'd be like, I don't want to hear that. Show me something else. You know, give me Ed Sheeran or give me the new this or that. But, um, and I don't know. I think that you never know too. Like maybe Ho-Hey comes out tomorrow and it, you know, gets buried in in the noise. Um, or maybe it came out 20 years ago and it, it would get buried and flop. You just never really know. And I think that in a cool way, there's always these like oscillations and cycles of genres and sounds that seem to go to the forefront. But, I think for me, like, I think, you know, to answer your question about being satiated, I think that time helps me, A, with perspective, and B, with actually feeling some sort of form of satisfaction. Because I think at the time, for me personally, maybe I'm like George Costanza or something. Like, anytime that we saw success, I sort of got, like, afraid. Like, anytime when we got nominated for the Grammys or when we met our management or when we were upgrading from the 15-passenger van to the tour bus style touring, it was just always this weird, like I felt anxious or afraid that something was, I don't know what I, I don't know specifically what I was afraid of, maybe losing the very thing that I helped to create or build, that it would maybe get diluted from other people or, you you know, this industry is riddled with like losing the masters of your songs or getting screwed over by lawyers or signing the bad contract and paying for it with the rest of your life and... You know, I've just heard a lot of those types of stories that maybe scared me, but um, I think having time is helpful because I just realized that, you know, 10 years after a song like Hohei and an album that came out like that, we're still being able to be ourselves, still being able to make music that we is authentic to ourselves. And I think it's hard too when you start to come out as a band. Um, a lot of people are quick to compare. So when we did that first... Uh, press circuit for our first album every question started off with uh mumford and sons was in the first question always and i think that was hard in some way because it's probably similar to what other bands felt maybe like pearl jam and nirvana and like the small grunching of seattle or i mean who didn't um, who didn't hear stone temple pilots and think that sounds like eddie vetter and then they went off but 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 over time i mean uh no one didn't you know, not to move forward, but this is true in the, your story. No one does an album like three, where you have sort of three EPs that kind of like, or like three sections that make up, right. you know, a story. You know, you went and made an artistic choice and you kept going, continuing to define yourself as someone different. Uh, I imagine that's difficult for a lot of people when they get compared early on, but that's, I'd rather that than not get there. 
<laughs> you know? No, that's true. That's a good point. And I think too, like even like Oasis and Blur having these like rivalries and people comparing them. And I think my point about the passage of time is so helpful and healthy because then you just like to your point, you know, you realize well, Stone Temple Pilots was just like its own band, the same way Pearl Jam was, and the same way we're our own entity. The same way Mumford and Sons is doing their own thing. Um, I think that's really healthy and cool and beautiful. But at the time, and I get it, the press want to compare and our brains need to compare and contrast and it's all good. Um, And the passage of time has helped me understand um, all that. But at the time, it was sort of like, you almost feeling like, yo, we're our own band. You you get that, right? It wasn't like we heard (laughs) other musicians were like, let's copy that and quick, get into Spotify. You know, it was like, We'd been grinding for years, and uh, the overnight success that was the Lumineers took probably a decade. So, yeah, for sure, classic, classic tale. Yeah. All right, we're gonna go to our next segment, which is called Five for Five. I'm gonna list five people, and you just tell me what comes off the top of your head. Like Darn- uh, one word or sentence, or what do you? What yeah, do you sure. Like? We really have no rules to this. I have yet to get mad at anybody for if you want to do one word, okay. that's cool. Uh, let's start with your wife. Francesca, um, brave, intelligent, beautiful. Let's start with, or let's go to your dad. My dad. Father figure of the year. Um, Yeah, I love my dad. He uh, was and is a great father. Worked very hard. his whole life to provide for me and our family. And I think that he was always a really cool voice of reason for me pursuing music because I remember, you know, when he said, oh, you're moving to Denver? That's cool. Well, make sure you have like X amount of dollars in your Wells Fargo checking account before you do because, you know, we're not going to, it's not going to be a free ride out there. So I think he's always like instilled um, the value of a dollar to me and really you know, helped me uh, turn into a, a fine young man, I think. So, yeah. Let's say your mom. Um, huge inspiration for me. Uh, massive amount of patience. And always was the number one fan and supporter of uh, me and the music and the band, really. And uh, always was there. Always let us do so much, make so much noise. So, Forever, forever grateful for that mom, and uh, yeah, so thankful to have her in my life. Yeah, let's go with the piano. Sublime, uh, the best, most beautiful instrument in the entire world. Wesley Schultz. All right, Wes, um, brother from a different mother. Is that the is that the phrase, brother from another mother? Um musical soulmate and uh ultimate partner in crime for uh writing songs. So love you, man. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks uh, a lot for having me. This was great. You know, it's like it's everyone has their journey and not everybody um, not everybody succeeds in the same way and not everybody treats songwriting the same. But when you say like defining your own path and that being different and you know, coming out of the gates and people comparing you, you know, you're releasing instrumental albums and you're doing 
albums that tell stories and you're still creating and using your skill set to pursue a new path and for I don't think we've had anybody who's you know from you know who's lived in those cities in particular and is ending is is now currently in Italy and you just seem to be a person of the earth that is creating something that is deeper than just trying to sell records. So I appreciate you being on here, man. Oh, man. That means the world. It really attaches me in a profound way. I really do appreciate that. And um, when you put it like that, it sounds pretty cool. So <laughs> thanks. Uh, no, honestly, thank you for the kind words. And it means a lot to have done this. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com